You are listening to the Entrust Podcast. This weekly course seeks to provide theological training within a ministry setting so you can take what you learn and share it with others. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. For now, here is this week's episode. All right, everybody, we ready to jump in? Ready to go? Have you had a wonderful day today? Good? All right, awesome. Well, what I'm looking forward to is we're going to open up um, and see some things through God's Word to help us understand more of who He is. Uh, what I want you to do is I want you to go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 21 because we're going to get there in just a little bit, okay? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. God, uh, guide us in this opportunity that we have to be able to seek your truth and to realize, God, of how close you are to us. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word and uh, just to get a big picture of what God, you have been doing from the beginning of time to right now. Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us understand your truth. Above all else, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going through the Grand uh, New Testament survey. I told you folks last week that we're going to do something a little bit different. And I want to teach you the entirety of the Bible in 45 minutes, which means I can't have a whole lot of clever things to start with. We just got to jump in, folks. What I want to do is give you the grand narrative of Scripture as we think about the Old Testament survey. And here's the reason why. Truth as a story in the Bible puts the entire narrative together. While many people know isolated events and popular phrases from within the pages of the scriptures, it's important to understand the big picture of what God is doing. So with this, you're going to see four major sections. We're going to walk through the scripture together, kind of four words that help me kind of understand the big picture of the Bible. It is creation, corruption, crucifixion, and commission. And then in that, I got a few phrases that will help highlight, summarize all of this for you. Fill in the blank to keep you locked in, but we've got to move. And so here's how the story begins. That God created the heavens and the earth. If we think through that God created all things and he created things all from his mouth, he spoke everything into being. When we look at the pages of scripture, we understand very quickly that in the beginning, it says that God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing before God. There was nothing that needed to help God. God created all things. And what God did in the initial days of creation was in the first three days, he created something called environments. And the next three days, he created something inhabitants to go within those environments. What's really unique about that is that on day one, he creates day and night. And three days later, he creates sun, moon, and stars to govern those. And day two, he creates the sky and the waters. And three days later, he creates things to go in the sky and the waters and birds and the fish. And in day three, he creates land. And three days later, he creates man who functions on the land. See, God created these people and he created them in his image and he placed them in the garden of Eden in these early days. And you need to know this, that the ideal uh, was God's people dwelling in God's place, delighting in God's presence. That's what was supposed to happen, that God gave them a garden and he gave them everything they need. And in fact, we oftentimes look at all the things that uh, we think is wrong in the garden of Eden because of the one tree that he said not to eat. But have you ever thought about the countless ones he said to eat? Countless blessings he said to enjoy. And yet, as he created Adam in his own image and gave him some responsibilities, he also gave him a helper to come alongside him and Eve to be able to help follow him to the best. But instead of following him along the way, at some point they decided to turn and mankind rebelled, trying to prove their worth. The tempter came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is none other than Satan himself disguised as a serpent, and he had a path he wanted them to do. If he could get them to doubt God's word, it would cause them to deny God's word and eventually lead them to disobey God's word. 
And so what happens was when Satan came in and said, are you sure that God said you can't do this? It's the same question he asked you and I on a Tuesday morning. Are you sure God's word says this? Are you sure you still have to follow this? And Satan caused them to doubt because he knew this, that if they could just get them to understand that God was keeping them something from them, then they could decide to take the mantle of God himself to finding what was good and what was evil. So they ate from the tree that they thought was delightful to the eyes. And as soon as they ate, they felt shameful. They wanted to cover up. They started to hide because they knew that they were dirty. They knew that they were shameful. And so they covered up in their sin. And the next thing they did is they began, they started in shame. Then they ended to blame. Basically, Adam said, well, guess what? The woman whom you gave me. And the woman says, oh, Satan, he's the one who tempted me, right? And everybody's wanting to point the fingers, but God starts laying out at every single one. And what's unique about this situation is when you really think about what took place as Adam was supposed to be the caretaker of the garden, he was supposed to watch over and to say that if God's people are resulting in God's place and enjoying God's presence, but now because of his sin, he's kicked out of the garden. But many of you know this, that when in his shame, he initially put fig leaves around him to cover himself up because he felt shameful. But when he's on the way out, God says, that's not enough. If you're going to have your shame covered, the only way thing that you can do that is you've got to be clothed in what's called garments of skin, Genesis 3.21. And I would say, if you think about right here, this garments of skin that God said, hey, the fig leaves aren't going to work, but I'm going to put skin garments on you. That just means something, that to cover up their shame, something had to die. The third page of the Bible, God is saying that in our sin, we cannot sit there and be shameful, that something has to die to cover us up. There was a sacrifice made in the garden that was pointing to another sacrifice that would be made. But what's spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is that God says, that Satan, your seed, and the woman's seed are going to be fighting against each other, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you think about a future birth that would one day come of which no man could get the credit for. And when you strike him in the heel, he will crush you in the head. And at that point, the cherubim set his place up to guard the Garden of Eden to keep the people of God out. And as Adam and Eve left the garden, they began to have a family, and they began to think that they could make things work. But within the first generation, we learned that this is going to get worse. Sin escalated to the shedding of blood with Adam and Eve's first two sons, Cain and what? Abel. Abel comes to the situation and he gives God his best. And Cain comes to the situation and he gives God what's left. Priorities versus leftovers. And God looks at Cain one day and says, son, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door for you. He's going to take you out if you're not careful. Abel did what was right. And because he did what was right, his brother killed him pointing us to another who would one day actually die in our place that because of his sin, not because of his sin, he did what was right, but because he did what was right, someone took it out on him. And actually, it says that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, that his blood was crying from the ground. And what happens from a situation from Cain and Abel was so interesting. Abel dies, Cain in his anger kills him, and then it says that Cain began to move east. And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, you, every time you see the word east, you find yourself watching the people of God drift even further away from the Garden of Eden. Because that's what sin does, by the way. Just takes you a little bit at a time further and further away. The more distant they grew from God, the more disobedient they became. We see them draw uh, east of Eden in chapter 4, verse 16. And we see Lot go there in chapter 13, verse 11, continuing to move uh, eastward. But throughout things, the sin continued to escalate from Cain and Abel. It got so bad that one day that God's wrath was displayed in the form of a what? The form of a flood. There was a guy by the name of Noah who was um, 
the most righteous man on the earth, and that's not saying a whole lot. Noah was not perfect, but Noah was the best they had. And one day God says, build a boat. And he says, what's a boat? He said, just trust me. Why? Because the storm's coming. What's that? Just trust me. Get building. Because one day God's wrath was going to come against the earth. And what took place was that as the rain happened is that basically you had two options. The rain was going to hit every single person. But as the rain came against this boat, basically, if you think about it, the timber was blocking people on the inside from experiencing God's wrath. There was some type of wood that was an instrument to which God's wrath would come against that if you had trusted in it and followed what God did, then you're on the inside. If you're outside the ark, you're going to drown. If you're on the inside of the ark, something on a piece of wood is blocking you, taking the wrath for you instead. See, all creation was either covered by God's wrath or covered from it. And in this moment, there's a timber standing between God's wrath and Noah. And it's the only way that you and I are going to find our salvation as well. After they get down from this, and after 40 days and 40 nights of rain, and many, many days until the water subsides, righteous Noah gets out the boat and has been with those animals for too long. He plants himself a vineyard. He gets completely plastered. And his uh, sons have to go, this is getting really awkward because dad started doing something in the South we call streaking running around with no clothes on, drunk as a skunk, and his sons have to throw a cloak on him because they're trying to avoid having to go to therapists because there are no therapists left in the world. The most righteous man on the earth, gone to sin, as soon as he gets off. Pointing that even the heroes of the Bible can't be trusted fully. No one was perfect. And so the people continue that after they come out from the flood and begin to repopulate the earth, that one day they start developing this power of Babel so that they can reach God on their own terms. And God instead scatters them and gives them a new language so that people have to leave from that place. And at that same moment, what happens is that God starts with faith with one man, that one was blessed to be a blessing. This guy's name was Abram and would turn into what? Abraham. Abram turns into Abraham. He says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing. And by the way, Abram, Abram's bio doesn't really start out so great. Out of nowhere, God calls him and says, I'm going to bless you. And there's no really seem a reason why. And the first thing that we see Abram do is basically go into a new city where all the town men notice how beautiful his wife is. And so he tells his wife to lie about her identity and say that, she is his sister so that any man can have her their way with her and him not be harmed. My friends, if this is who you're going to start a whole faith movement, I don't know if this is the right guy to start with. Why is the Bible even included? We wouldn't know about it unless it put it there because it's trying to say even the best of men couldn't get it together. And God didn't love them because they had it together. He blessed them so that one day they would get it. But he didn't wait for them to start there. In fact, Abraham one day gets out and through many different situations in chapter 15 of Genesis, God brings Abram out one night. It's a starry sky and says, I want you to look up in the stars. Abram, can you count the stars? He goes, there's no way I can count them, God. Why don't you try? And Abram starts to count. And he says, God, they're, they're too much for me. Well, so will your spiritual descendants one day. One day. There's going to be more, more people that follow the way of truth than there are stars in the sky because somebody from your family is going to come. And change everything. And Abram says, God, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I don't have a son. How can I have a family if I don't have a son? How can I have an heir if there's no way? And have you seen my wife? This ain't happening. And God said, do you believe? 
Do you believe that I can do the impossible? So it says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God and God credited to him righteousness. Understand that even in the Old Testament, you didn't earn righteousness. You believed and God gave you righteousness. Faith unlocked righteousness. And Abraham believed and all that he knew that there was coming someone from his family that would one day change the whole trajectory of the world. And it says he believed and God gave him righteousness. What was Abraham's belief in? That name that we know, but he couldn't name at the time the name of Jesus. Looking forward, faith was the only hope for redeeming righteousness. Some unnamed figure was going to come from his family and change the world. And God promised a nation, a nation promised a Messiah coming. You're going to have a child. And Abram's response is, have you seen my wife? And God's response is, have you seen me fail? Have you seen anything that I can't do? So at some point, Abram, Abraham's wife, Sarah, comes up to him and says, there's no way I'm giving you a child. How about I give you my servant? And she, you can impregnate her. And then you can have a son. And Abraham did what most good husbands do. Whatever you want, dear. So he brings this young woman into his house. Impregnates her. And you can imagine what happens. You talk about the drama. Good thing Mari Povic was not on because he could not help the situation. Ishmael is born. And God says, there is not this is not the son that I told you you were going to have. And he says, there's no way, God. It's impossible to have a child through Sarah. And he goes, that's where I'm going to have this because I don't want the child of works. I want the child of promise. I don't want the child of what you have figured out what you can do. I want a child of what only God can do. 13 years later, when Abraham reached 100 years old, he went to shopping at Babies R Us because Isaac was born. The only hope for God's people to survive was in a sacrificial son, obedient to his father. And that is what is so unique about this is that Isaac is born 13 years later and Abraham watches this boy grow. And just at the point when he gets old enough, God tells him to do the unthinkable. In Genesis chapter 22, he says, take your son, your only son whom you love, which sounds hauntingly familiar to for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Take your son, your only son, the one that you love, but there's another son of Ishmael. Now, that's the son of you tried to fix what I can do. I'm talking about the son that I gave you. Not through sin, through grace, through promise. I'm talking about that son right there. And at the moment when Isaac is just getting to be the point of where he can actually be somebody and do something, what we find is this. That God asked Abraham to take his son up on the mountain and sacrifice. So, by the way, they rode a donkey into town. It took him three days to get there. And it says about this son, Isaac, that he took the wood of the sacrifice on his back. So follow, if you will, a son following his father up the mountain with the wood of the sacrifice upon his back, going to the place of sacrifice, coming off a donkey that took him three days to get to his destination. He lays himself down so that he can take the place and be the sacrifice for it. And just in the moment when, when Abraham is about to take his son's life, God calls out to him and says, don't take your son's life. I've got a sacrifice for him. And over in the side, there was a ram caught in the thicket that could be Isaac's sacrifice. What's a thicket? It's a bush full of thorns. Where was that ram stuck? Around the head. A crown of thorns surrounded the sacrifice that the son had walked up the mountain to follow his father to. And now the son comes back to life, if you will. 
when the sacrifice has been made. And God is telling Abraham that I am going to do something that I'm not going to make you do. There is going to be an opportunity for God to do something amazing. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had a whole lot of kids. At one point, he had one of his sons named Joseph who was rejected by his brothers, treasured by his father, beaten by those who didn't understand, stripped of his clothing, sold into the hands of a foreign leader, accused even though he was not guilty. He was around at the moment in the prison and understanding what to do. He had two people around him before the king called him out. One was the cupbearer and one was the baker. One was the cup, one was the bread. Are you starting to see this? Here is this person who is in chains because of not of what he's done, surrounded by the wine and the bread, reminding ourselves of a sacrifice that is to come. He is risen to a place, forgives his brothers, and now is seated at the right hand of the most powerful person in the world. Favored, too forgotten, too forsaken, and yet God continues to watch over Joseph. And Joseph is now placed in the most powerful position the most powerful nation in the world named Egypt. And for years, they get all of what they could experience in life. But one day, a new pharaoh rises up and doesn't want Joseph's family or Israel to be able to enjoy all the benefits of his life. And so he enslaves them. But through a mighty way that God did this, through 10 plagues, there were people rescued out from slavery. God calls a man by the name of Moses to walk into the house of Pharaoh and demand that he would let God's people go. And through a series of 10 plagues, he finally gets God's attention. These plagues attack uh, Egypt's affluence. They attack Pharaoh's pride. The Egyptians will know that God is the Lord in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. And the final sacrifice that gets Pharaoh's attention is because that the death of someone in the house has to take place because of the sin in the land. And the only way that you can get out is if a pure sacrificial lamb dies in your place and that blood is put on the doorpost of that house so that when God sees that house, it goes, he will pass over that house because someone has died in the place. That blood, that lamb's blood had to be spilled. And that lamb's blood, none of the bones could be broken. It had to be completely consumed. And it was the only way to be taken out that day and made out alive. And that day, God rescued his people or sacrifice had to take place for God to pass over our sin. And as these people go out and they are free to go to the promised land, the law was given to show their inability. God gives Moses a set of instructions, not before they got out, but before, uh, not uh, before they got out so that they could keep them so to get redeemed. No, they were redeemed so that now they could keep these commands. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out. And he gives them 10 commands and he gives them 603 other commands of how they ought to live, knowing how to follow him. God's instructions, they were a path for the redeemed, not a prerequisite for them. And he says in Exodus 19, 4, 5, you've seen what I did, how I carried you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you'll carefully listen to me. And while they go and have the law, they did not keep it so well. And time and time again, they find themselves transgressing. And for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. And finally, after a people, that generation has passed, now they finally settled into the promised land. Redeemed, struggling to follow the commands, now reach home finally settled into the promised land, and they have to decide what are they going to do. Now, along the way to get there, they understand at one point they're in such sin that they don't know how they're going to happen, and they're going to die there. And God says, why don't you strike the side of the rock and watch water come forth? The life-flowing flow of what they needed came from the image of the one, or the side of the one who had done nothing wrong. There's another time when Moses comes up and the people or God are going to experience his wrath. And he goes, why don't you take me instead, God? Don't kill them. Take me. And he goes, no, nah, but my messenger will take care of that. Just hold on. 
There's another time at one point in Numbers chapter 21 where the people have sinned so bad that God sends snakes upon them to bite them and they're going to die. And the only way they can be saved is that they take an image of that snake, put it up on a pole so that if you believe in God's promise, that if you run to that and put your faith in it, the symbol of what's killing us is the only way for salvation. Which makes sense that John chapter 3, 16, for God so loved the world, we can't really understand without John 3, 14, where he says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the, in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. So that a symbol of what has put us to death is the only way that we can be redeemed. Moses passes the baton to Joshua. They go into the promised land and the story goes on and he says, choose this day whom you will serve. And the problem was this, they chose all right. And they chose sin over and over again. The cycle of sin punished again and again. We get to the book of Judges. We, we see throughout the history after Joshua about how often they continued to go back and settle back into sin. They grew accustomed to doing what they wanted and not fearing severe results because of it. It says, in fact, at the end of Joshua chapter 21, they did whatever seemed right to them, which sounds absolutely horrible, does it not? The culture. Uh, establishing the promised land, no leader, no authority structure, self-determined. Their sin would lead them to suffering. Their suffering would cause them to go to supplication and prayer. That supplication would cause a judge to rise up and bring them salvation. And then the cycle would start over and over again. Going through people like Barak, going through people like Gideon, like Samson, like Ehud, different people who would step up and get the people out of trouble, but they'd go right back to their ways yet again. Without a commitment to God's standard, they just spiraled out of control. Through in this leaderless society, eventually a kingdom was established and kings took up the crown. The first king that Israel ever had was a guy by the name of Saul. And they looked to Saul for what they would hope to find in strength. They went and found the most tallest person they could find. And they found him in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. It says that Saul was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And they thought, we found ourselves a king. Look at this tall guy. He'll fight our battles. We can trust in him. And they felt really confident until they found somebody a little bit taller than Saul. His name, Goliath. And they put their trust in man. They put their trust in height. They put their trust in stature. And when something came a little bit higher than that, they ran. And yet there was someone who said, I'll fight him. His name was David. He wasn't a king like what everybody thought. He was a king after God's own heart. And when he went to the battlefield that day, it says in 1 Samuel 17, 46, I'm going to go fight you so that all the world may know that there's a God in Israel. He's the one true Lord. So with this, while for the wonderful things that David did, for every Goliath, there's always a Bathsheba. For every moment of success and victory, there's always some horrible, horrible defeat. That the greatest of men still let the people down. For every victory in the valley there was just compromise on the roof any shred of human heroics was always tainted by these frustrating frailties that these people had and so david would sin and solomon got even worse and it was promised in second samuel 7 13 that after david would come a descendant and it says i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever folks i just want to go ahead and tell you solomon didn't reign forever but there is someone who's coming from the family of david who would reign forever his name is Jesus. And this promise to David and all of his sin and all of Solomon's dysfunction. Here was this guy who started well in Solomon. He says, I just want to lead your people God's way. And, and God gave him wisdom to ability to do that. And the guy who wrote the book on marriage in the Bible eventually had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
reminding you that at one point in your life you can be teaching truth, but later in your life you cannot keep. Dangerous. All the greatest of men, they kept letting the people down over and over again. He started well, but he died unable to obey the wisdom that he wrote. And after Solomon, what happened was a civil war of sorts. A nation divided while prophets warned in the streets. Israel got into a civil war, disagreed about who was the heir to Solomon, and Israel and Judah separated, creating two nations that causes the middle of the Old Testament to get really, really confusing. Because this king is the king of Israel, and this king is the king of Judah, and you're following this, and this prophet's talking to this guy, and that prophet's talking to that guy, and it goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and you have these prophets going through the streets trying to get people to come back to the Lord. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be white as snow. Jeremiah comes up in chapter 6, verse 15, he says, My people don't even know how to blush anymore. Come back to the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why won't you turn and live? As these prophets called out to the people, yet they kept tweaking religious devotion to satisfy their personal desires. Tweaking religious devotion to always inviting disaster because they wanted to be able to follow the God of the Bible, but also the gods on the side. They wanted the Lord on call, but they'd called the gods on the side too close to them. And throughout these prophets, they continued to warn one message. Get right before it's too late. God's going to come and judge us. How's he going to judge us? He's going to bring Babylon in here to defeat us. Babylon, they're worse than us. They're more sinful than us. And the prophets were saying one message and one message alone. But you know better. Of course Babylon's going to act like Babylon, but not my people. And if you don't wake up and straighten up, God's going to let our enemies come in and defeat us. They didn't believe it to be true. But eventually it happened that until godless enemies came and administered defeats, God let ungodly, horrible pagan nations defeat the people of God, and it was an international embarrassment. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? God, how have you let this happen to us? They live like sinful cities like Babylon, so God let them move there. This is what they wanted. Follow this if you will. God will allow temporary harm come to his reputation for the eternal good of our redemption. Folks, when Israel and Judah went down, it looked bad on the God of the Bible. And he says, I'll take a black eye for a season if I need to, because I've got to purify my people. He wasn't fearful of years of international kind of on the side. No, no, no. He wasn't fearful at all. He was working on a purification. The people in the, the, the nation would say, but God, you need this people. But they weren't acting like his people. So what happened, not only were they defeated, but nations like Babylon did something horrible. That they actually moved them into exile, captured them, imprisoned them, and moved them to their own cities. A people in the exile, suffering from their guilt. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, that's one of our favorite places to go, is for I know the plans that I have for you. And that's a beautiful passage, but what people don't know is what Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 10 say before you get to that verse, which says, oh, I know the plans I have for you, but get ready. You're going to be in exile for 70 years. You better, plant, you better build some houses and plant some gardens and get married and have some babies. You're going to be here a while, but I do have a plan for you. And one day it's going to turn around and I'm going to bring you back, but we've got to refine. We've got to purify. So after 70 years are complete, 
God brings in people and they're men like Daniel who are pressured to live like Babylon and within the ranks he decides that it is better to be in the lion's den than to be on the king's table. Right? It was better for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to be thrown into the fiery furnace than it was to have the name of their God discarded among them. They wouldn't pray to anybody. They wouldn't bow to anybody but the king of kings. Daniel wouldn't pray to anybody but God. He opened the windows up and eventually through a series of time over 70 years, finally through the exile happens, that God uses a king to allow the people to come back. And a remnant returns and a city is rebuilt. There are a group of people led by people like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah to lead them back from those pagan nations to walk back in what is the rubble. That God turns the authorities that didn't bow to him to accomplish his will. And those who endured learned how to live and follow God among a land that did not. And when the opportunity came, they went. Ezra and Zerubbabel established the temple. Nehemiah came up and set up the walls. And within years, Haggai is giving a message of saying, why have you grown apathetic? Why are we working on our homes and not the house of God? What's happening here? And eventually all the prophets had uh, preached their message. And we get to the end of the Old Testament and we find this prophet named Malachi. And after him, he gives this scathing a warning that if we don't turn around and take things seriously, God is going to do something to wake us up. We need him to come back to the temple. People feared if they'd been left on their own. Because after the book of Malachi, we hear no prophets speaking in the streets. Malachi chapter 1 verse 10 says, I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you. God said to his people, don't show up to church today because you've just given me lip service. Lock the doors. I don't want you in here. If you're not going to take it serious, let's just stop all this together. And after he asked to close the doors, then something crazy happened. There were no more prophets, no more preachers, no more warnings in the street. 400 silent years before the answer was known. 400 years represent the separation between the last page of Malachi and the first page of Matthew, where no prophet is standing up in Israel and saying that God is with us. That blank page in the Bible was such an ominous warning. The Old Testament was a constant reminder of God's people not acting like they were God's people. And eventually, they begin to wonder, have we messed up beyond the point of repair and has God completely forgotten about us? But folks, I remind you, that is the Old Testament and there's something coming called the New Testament. Because what happens after the 400 years of silence, glory to God and peace upon the earth was what was said there in the night of a bunch of shepherds out in their fields, keeping their flocks by night, outskirts of society, forgotten by everyone in the midst of chaos, Peace was proclaimed. It wasn't circumstantial peace. It was deeper than that. These shepherds got the surprise. Jesus' birth announcement came to the most unlikely candidates, and this was the announcement. Eden's eviction has ended. God has come to dwell with his people again. You got to come see this. And they began to run. That God would not stay silent. And as they go to this manger and they see this young man, and his betrothed wife, they find a savior was given, and a virgin gave birth. This birth was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, a birth of which no man could get the credit, even kind of identified the city of city of Bethlehem where this birth would happen. Salvation must originate from only what God can do, from the seed of woman, not the seed of man, 
something that no man can get the credit for, that God can get the credit for. And so the birth that happens in Jesus, salvation originates from only what God can accomplish. This child was the serpent crusher talked about in Genesis chapter 3. He set things in motion and Satan knew it because as soon as Jesus was born, there's all these kind of forces that start trying to kill every baby boy in that area because Satan knows the serpent killer has been set loose. And we just got to stop him. And a massacre and genocide starts happening, trying to locate that child to kill that baby boy that is going to put an end to what Satan accomplished in the garden. But no matter what was happened, no matter how Satan tried to stop him, God protected him in every way. And this baby boy turned into a man. And at age 30, he started a ministry. And for 33 years of his life, we know this, that God in the flesh lived free from sin. He lived, Jesus Christ, 33 years on this earth, free from sin, perfect obedience. Not only did he keep the law, can I tell you this? He actually upped it. He actually kept it. He said, I know that you've heard it said don't commit murder, but let me tell you this. Just don't even have anger in your heart. I know you've heard it said don't commit adultery. I'm saying don't let lust go rampant in your, and people thought, oh, you're trying to get rid of the law. No, I'm trying to get you the heart of the law. No one can do this on your own strength. It's not just about your external actions. It's about what's going on inside your heart. And Jesus Christ kept it. The only one able to combat sin's punishment, he's the one who never conformed to it. He does in 40 days in the wilderness when Satan tempted him what the whole nation could not do in 40 years. He leaves what is present and available and helpful, and he goes by himself. And in 40 days, just like Satan attempted Israel, he continues to follow. Where Israel fell, Jesus succeeds. He is obedient at every step. And no matter what Satan throws in his way, he keeps saying, but it is written, I'll be faithful. It is written, I will obey. It is written, I will do what God called me to do. Never once did he break the Ten Commandments. He lived free from sin. And Jesus conveyed grace and truth from within. What's happening is, what's amazing is, if you think about how he lived his life, did anyone tell you about the time that the woman interrupted him on the way to go help somebody? Instead of getting frustrated by her, he says, daughter, I care for you. Did anyone ever tell you about the time the leper approached him, which was a no-no? You can't approach somebody like this with leprosy. And he says, I want to be cleansed. And Jesus did the unthinkable. He touched him before he cleansed him. He grabs his hand and says, oh, I'm willing to be cleansed. And what happens in that moment is, the leprosy is now passed from the leper to Jesus, and now Jesus is unclean due to his association. Jesus goes down into the baptismal waters where everybody is going down to wash their sins away, and Jesus plunges himself under the water, not because his sins need to be washed off, because he wanted to plunge himself under ours. So when he comes up from the water, he's now bearing our sin. Not walking through the streets and through the wilderness due to his sin. No, no, no. He's conveying grace and truth with them. He never lived as if compassion and conviction were enemies of one another. Did they ever tell you about the time where there was a woman caught in the adultery, right? Pharisees bring her forward. Hey, you know what the law says. What are you going to do? Write in the ground and make all the people start running away. What did he write? I just got to know, right? Starts writing stuff. The old men start walking off. The younger men start walking off. He looks at this woman who's caught in adultery. He says, woman, where your accusers are gone. And the one who could have condemned her and picked up that stone and killed her says, Neither do I. Was that the end of the story? No. Because then he looks at her and says, go and sin no more. Grace and truth. I forgive you. Don't do it again. It's not the way. There's a better path for you. See, Jesus conveyed grace and truth from within. 
he's telling them to go and sin no more. He begins his preaching ministry. And what we find is that recognizes teaching with authority. When Jesus preached, people listened. Did anyone tell you about the time he was feeding 5,000 on the green grass and they couldn't miss his words that they forgot about eating for three days? I know some of y'all have been listening to me for about 30 minutes. You're like, any time to wrap this thing up, I'm ready for a meal. I get it. They listen to him for three days and go, who cares? We want more. Why? Because when he taught, he taught with authority. The words of Christ proved to be reliable truth transcending every unstable culture. And what we find ourselves is that throughout it all, that people wanted to hear what he had to say. Did anyone ever tell you about the time where people started to walk away from Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6 because it was so hard and, and Jesus looks at his disciples and says, do you want to go too? And they go, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We've heard your teaching. There's nothing like it in the world. So he continues to teach with authority. But along the way, he upset some of the powers that be. He was despised and rejected by this group called the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of the time. They had memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy. If anybody knew God's word, it was these guys. But they had God's son right in their presence, and they missed it. Did anyone ever tell you about the time that the paralytic messed up Jesus' sermon? Lowered down right before Jesus in the middle of his sermon, kind of cuts a hole through this roof, dropped down there right before him, and then all of a sudden, Jesus looks at this guy who's been waiting for some religious holy man to say all of his life, pick up your pallet and go home. And Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. But I came about my legs. And Jesus goes, but there's something more sick than your legs. It's your heart. And that's what I've come to forgive. And then all of a sudden, all the Pharisees in the room going, do you hear what he just said? He said he's got the authority to forgive sins. Only one person has the authority to forgive sins, and that's God alone. And Jesus goes, I know what you're thinking, and just so you know that I have the authority to do that, son, pick up your pallet and go home with your sins forgiven, and let's move on out of here. Anybody got any questions about who I'm claiming to be? I am God in the flesh. Deal with it. The Pharisees at that moment going, okay, all right, we got it. And they started a path to be able to take him to death. Eventually, moving through their traditions and rules, the expectations caused them to miss God in the flesh. They wanted a version of God that they had created. Because of the pushback that they had, they worked with the Roman government, and we find ourselves that Christ was crucified on the hill of Calvary. He was taken to the cross not because of his sins, but because of our sins. Jesus was willing to die so that you could truly live. Two thieves that were represented on the side of Jesus represent every single one of us. One thief was, Jesus, why don't you get yourself down and get me out of here too? And the other thief goes, are you kidding me? I deserve this. You deserve this, but not him. We deserve this. But Jesus, when you go to paradise, will you remember me? He put his faith in the only one that could get him to heaven. But even on the cross, Jesus is leading people to home. On that cross, he exchanged righteousness for our depravity. Righteousness, his righteousness, our depravity. We're unable to keep things. We're unable to not sin. In fact, in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And I want to stand up and go, yes, they did. Yes, we do. But he's exchanged his righteousness for our sin. He put our sin upon him and his righteousness upon us. And you need to know this. I'll remind you yet again that either you will pay for your sins for eternity or Christ has already paid for them at Calvary. Those are your options. If you are in your sin, you will suffer for eternity under condemnation that you deserve. But if you put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ, then he has already suffered for your sins upon the cross and you can be forgiven tonight. But that wasn't the end of the story because on the third day, the Savior would rise. On Sunday morning, as the sun goes up, 
as the light is now once again entering in on the same day of the week where God said, let there be light, there was light again. And at the sunrise itself, all hope seemed to be lost. And yet what they find themselves in when they walk into the empty tomb, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And sitting there within that empty tomb, they hear these words from these angels. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is risen. They begin to run out of that tomb wild and crazy, telling everyone that will listen that he's not there. We remember that the cross was not the end. While his enemies were rejoicing, the authorities celebrating, his followers regrouping, his disciples doubting, those women were crying, my Jesus was busy rising. No cross could defeat him. No government could pacify him. No demonic force could control him. No sin could keep him. No grave contain him. No death restrain him. Jesus Christ got up. And he is alive today. And as we think through what happened next, as he rises from the grave and he's around on the earth for 40 days, he eventually commissioned the disciples and is ascent to the sky. He goes up into the clouds. And as he goes, he tells them he's initiating this commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. The Great Commission calls us to make disciples, not just converts. We are to go until he returns, but you go, I don't have the power to do it. Neither do I. And that's why the Holy Spirit empowered the gospel unashamed on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes down to this group of disciples who are fearful and afraid. The doors locked. And where it moved from God in the Old Testament above us, through the gospels, God beside us, now Acts is going on, God inside us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 16, 7, you'll be in a better spot if physical God leaves your presence and the Holy Spirit comes into your life. The Pentecost comes down and, it, and takes off where Babel messed up, where people are trying to reach up to God and God distorts the languages on the day of Pentecost. God gives the ability to speak in tongues. So when all the people came back to that city, now they can hear the gospel in their language and now they go forth and share that message everywhere they go. The church was established giving everything away. Folks, this wasn't a building. It wasn't a service. It was a family. And when eternity is secure, the temporal becomes inconsequential and they begin to sell everything they had so they can meet the needs of one another. If there was a need, they met it. They sold their possessions. They prayed. They helped. They went alongside to minister to one another. And as this church begins to establish in a government that is so rough, so kind of off the beaten path, they continue to move forward. And no amount of persecution can keep the message back. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, they stayed in Jerusalem. So what God allowed happen is that he lit the match with persecution that sent them out of Jerusalem. Stephen is one day testifying about God's grace and preaching the gospel. And as he begins to get pummeled with rocks and dying at the hands of a guy by the name of Saul, says he looks up to heaven and he sees Jesus Christ standing, which is very unique because after the resurrection, every time Jesus is mentioned in heaven, he's sitting, symbolizing what Hebrews chapter 10 says, that when this final sacrifice was made, he could sit down. But when Stephen is being put to death, Jesus rises from his feet and says, come on, boy, you're almost home. You can do this, son. I'm with you even in your suffering. They can live with the world's aggression because they knew they had the Savior's approval. And that man named Saul who put Stephen to death, eventually what happened was Paul was converted and actually proclaimed the faith he attacked. He, the people laid their coats at the guy by the name of Saul. He was a murderer. He had did all kinds of horrible things to run down pastors and run down missionaries. 
and yet on the Damascus Road, he's hit by a blinding light. And Jesus speaks to him and doesn't say, why are you persecuting Stephen? And why are you running after Peter? He says, why are you persecuting me? Because you mess with my boys, you're messing with me. These are my sons and my daughters, and I'm putting a stop to it. And Saul believes in the gospel. He changes and has a completely radical transformation. They begin to call him Paul, and now he proclaims the faith he once attacked. And I want this to be a reminder to everybody. There is no person too far gone that God cannot reach. I don't care how far they're gone. God can turn them around. He can do something amazing. He got some training. He was used mightily. And what happened was he began to go on mission trips and share the gospel and make disciples and plant churches among the nations. Churches were multiplied. Jews and Gentiles, young and old, men and women, religious and rebellious. In Acts chapter 13, it says this about the church in Antioch. There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Why do I give you all those names? Because it shows something crazy about a church. It was a multicultural church from different socioeconomic backgrounds that had everything different upon each other, but they had this one thing in common. Jesus has saved them, and they were family. And as they began to plant these churches, it wasn't about what side of the tracks you were on or what skin color you were. No, you were just in. To believe in Jesus meant that you belonged to his people. Christianity is not this isolated faith. Paul and his crew were planting churches everywhere. They spread like wildfire. And as these churches started, and sometimes persecution would lead Paul to have to leave the city, he would kind of have to look and say, all right, I got 10 converts. Guess what? Timothy, you're the pastor. Got to go. Good luck. And have to run on to the next spot. Eventually, he would hear about the church what's going on in Ephesus. He'd hear about the church what's going on in Corinth. And sometimes he couldn't be there, so he'd have to get the message to help train them about what a church would be. Letters were sent. Doctrine and practice clarified. As Paul and other people would write letters to churches, it's the back section of the New Testament that we have, starting from Romans, going all the way down to Jude, or all these different letters sent to churches, helping them understand what is biblical doctrine, helping them understand what is godly practice clarifying what you believe and how therefore your belief turns into your behavior. We aren't any different. We've got to continue to go back to what does God's word say about belief and behavior, align with God's word. The problem is we're too quick to point out the world's issues and not look at what's going on in the church. And Paul says, don't get complacent. But at the end of the Bible, the end of the book, what happens is a revelation was given for though the future seems grim. Things were so bad for the early church. The Apostle John is sitting there on the island of Patmos because he's been arrested and left there to die. And he sees this vision. He sees a revelation. He sees a sign of what is to come. John on Patmos, the last disciple, original disciple left. The Roman Empire had the church on the ropes, and yet the church wouldn't be silent. God's plans going forward, even though that the world seemed out of control. And when you read the book of Revelation, while there's a lot of things about beasts and dragons and visions and bowls of wrath and all these kind of things that you may not understand, this is what you can get from the book. I know it seems bad. It ain't over. I know it seems bad right now, but there's coming another day. God is going to get to the end of this and something is going to happen that's going to change forever. And this is our belief that Christ will return and we will be with him. That is what we are hoping for. That is what we're going for. That one day, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, that we will be able to be in his presence, that God's people will once again dwell in God's place, delighting in God's presence, which is why I bring you to Revelation chapter 21, where he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, get this, 
the new Jerusalem not going up, but coming what? Coming down out of heaven because we don't come to God. God's got to come to us. Coming down out of heaven from God, repaired like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from a throne saying, look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, write it down because these words are faithful and true. Then he's the end. What's happening? He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. And I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. I remind you once again, God is not out of control. This world is not going on a path. He doesn't know where to go. So if I can, one more time before I lose oxygen, I want to remind you. God created the heavens and the earth. Mankind rebelled, trying to prove their worth. Sin escalated to the shedding of blood. God's wrath was displayed in the form of a flood. But one was blessed to be a blessing. A nation promised a Messiah coming. A people rescued out from slavery. The law was given to show their inability. Final settled, finally settled into the promised land. The cycle of sin punished again and again. A kingdom established. Kings took up the crown. But the greatest of men still let the people down. A nation divided while prophets warned in the streets until godless enemies came and administered defeats. A people in exile suffering from their guilt. A remnant returns, a city rebuilt. The people feared if they'd been left on their own 400 silent years before the answer was known. But glory to God and peace upon the earth. A savior was given, a virgin gave birth. God in the flesh lived free from sin. Jesus conveyed grace and truth from within. Recognized as teaching with authority, despised and rejected by the Pharisees. Christ crucified on the hill of Calvary, exchanged righteousness for our depravity. But on the third day, the Savior would rise, commission the disciples and his ascent to the sky. The Holy Spirit empowered the gospel unashamed. The church established giving everything away and no amount of persecution could keep the message back. Paul was converted, proclaimed the faith, the attack. Among the nations, churches were multiplied. Letters were sent, doctrine and practice clarified. A revelation was given for though the future seems grim, Christ will return and we will be with him. Amen? Amen. Father, that is our great hope, is that this world is not out of control. You still have it in your hands and you are working towards a purpose and I look for that last day and it helps me get through this one. Help us as we continue to better understand your New Testament and context of the Bible in the middle of what's going on in this world. And the more that we understand it, the more that we understand and love you. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thank y'all. Thank you for listening to the Entrust Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast. We hope that you take what has been entrusted to you here and give it to another.